Hello and welcome to Believe in Me with Rona Barton. This week, I'm sharing another bonus episode with you. I participated in a webinar for social care that was hosted by Dr Nina Muirhead. Nina is a specialty doctor in dermatology surgery in the NHS and she became unwell with ME in 2016. She's used her experience to work in partnership to create a CPD module in ME CFS for GPs and allied health professionals. As advanced notice, the webinar ran to over an hour, so you may wish to break this episode down into smaller chunks and digest it over a number of days. Also, fair warning, there are a few pauses or blips in the recording as we were battling some internet issues, but I've left it all unedited here for you. Before we jump in though, don't forget you can review, share and subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can sign up for my mailing list by visiting ronabarton.co.uk or join my Facebook group Believe in Me community by following my Facebook page, which is at Rona Barton Coaching. Now, if you want to watch the full webinar recording, head over to YouTube and search for Action for ME. You'll find their YouTube channel and you'll be able to see the slides that were shared as part of the webinar on the day. In the meantime, however, Here's the audio recording for you. I'm the Director of Business Support and Development at Action for ME, and it's great to see so many people attending today. We will be recording this and the recordings will be available afterwards, so do feel free to both take your own and, of course, share with any colleagues who may find this helpful. Um, I hope that you find this session useful and educational and I'm delighted that we're going to be hearing from two individuals with ME and their experiences of acting care through this. Here at Action for ME we support over 2,000 people a year through our services, many of whom access social care for their needs and it's great to have an opportunity to meet some professionals today and to also share our understanding of this and I would really encourage anyone who's interested in this field or wants to learn more to have a look at our website or the website of our partner organisations, which we'll share at the end, because we do have resources for professionals. We understand how busy you are and how up against it you are, particularly in these post-COVID times. So really hope that you can see us as a resource to help you in your practice um, as we go along. So um, in terms of uh, the agenda, I'll hand over to Nina in a moment, who is going to give an introduction and we'll then have input from Zoe and from Rona, who join on the panels today. And then there'll be a Q&A session and we hope we can get through as many questions as we can if we can't we're very happy to follow up in an email we can then um, take your questions and we'll send out a paper afterwards with all of that and just to say that this webinar is part of a project called learn about any it's funded by the scottish government we've been running for about a year and a half and the whole aim is to increase understanding around me and, and this condition we recognize that it affects at the moment about a quarter of a million people in the uk we are anticipating a significant role post-COVID as a result of um, post-viral complications. So I hope you find this relevant. Please do share. And Nina, I will 
hand over to you with no further ado. Thank you so much for the introduction, Ruth. That's absolutely brilliant. I'm going to share my, oh, I need to enable my um, screen sharing, please, if you can. So I can share the PowerPoint. It's host disabled participant screen. Avril, do you have a question? Ah, there we go. Fantastic. So my name is Dr. Nina Muirhead. I'm an NHS doctor and I'm also a person with ME. I've been suffering for five years now. I was quite severely affected for a around 18 months where I was bed bound for six months and required a wheelchair to leave the house for another 18 months. If you could go to the view show, view show Thank you, brilliant. Um, so it's a pleasure to be able to talk to you today about the implications for social care. Next slide. So I'm going to go through what is MECFS, next. How it's diagnosed and managed. And what do people with MECFS need? What their family members need in supporting them and helping in their care? And how it's different from other illnesses, but also the similarities with coping and adjusting to chronic disease and needing care in the home. Next slide. So MECFS is a neurological disease. It's characterized by symptom exacerbation. I might be able to share mine now. Sorry, I do apologize. <laughs> there we go. I'm gonna stop sharing and then share so I can have control if that's okay. Thank you. There we go. Okay, that's a little bit easier. Um, the World Health Organization uh, categorized myalgic encephalomyelitis as a neurological disease. Some healthcare practitioners also refer to it as chronic fatigue syndrome, but some patients do find that this underestimates the sheer exhaustion and the crushing pain and other multi-system sy symptoms that the disease actually gives them. And therefore it's often underestimated by general public and also uh, healthcare and social care professionals, how much this disease actually impacts them on their day-to-day -day living. The key feature is this symptom exacerbation following exertion, otherwise known as post-exertional malaise. And the reason why it's really important to understand that, and it's probably one of the main take-home messages of today, is that patients with MECFS need support in just keeping within their energy level that doesn't make them worse. So trying to get people to do a little bit more each day or to, to encourage them to, to be independent in their activities of daily living for this specific disease can actually make them sicker. The range of severity can fluctuate and often we don't see patients when they're most sick so we often underestimate how severe this disease can be but at its most severe people are full-time in bed often in a darkened room needing care with every aspect of nutrition, um, toileting and everything. 
Other main diagnostic criteria are unrefreshing sleep, severe exhaustion and cognitive impairment. And I've already mentioned the post-exertion malaise, very important. Like long COVID, um, there are hundreds of symptoms of MACFS. They're multi-system, including orthostatic problems, dizziness, palpitations, fainting, nausea, worsening on standing and being upright, which is again, really important for a care setting. Um, and also coping with jobs that involve standing for long periods of time at home. Temperatures, hypersensitivity, sweating, chills, hot flushes, and feeling very cold are also problems that patients experience, as well as neuromuscular symptoms, flu-like symptoms, sore throats, problems with chemicals, um, perfumes and strong smells, um, bright lights, loud noises, touch. Patients can be incredibly hypersensitive to, to any changes in their environment as well headaches, eye pain, abdominal pain, literally every single body system can be affected. The management of MECFS involves understanding the unpredictability and how to keep within your energy um, limitations. So patients are often recommended to find a baseline where they're able to function without their symptoms getting worse. And sometimes that can be very difficult and can take a few weeks to establish because patients can experience a fluctuation of their baseline itself. Some weeks they'll be able to do more and other weeks less. And it can be very frustrating that when you were within your energy limits on one week, you've done the same the next week and actually overdone it. It's important for patients to identify their priorities because for some patients, it may be that um, on, on different weeks, um, different things take priority. I was doing this presentation today, so I haven't had a shower yet to save my energy to talk to you. Um, it's important to plan ahead, plan rest, and also chunking. So an example of chunking is if, for example, a patient wanted to do a, a load of washing on a particular week. One day they may sort the washing, and then they may choose a day midweek when they have a little bit more energy to put it in and take it out. But they may they need to then wait a few days before folding it up and then another few days before putting it away. So by breaking down a task that most people wouldn't even think would be a difficult one, um, patients with any CFS would need to do so. And often they couldn't even do that, but it's important to know how by breaking tasks into smaller parts, you can achieve some little things. Relapses can be unpredictable and they also feel rather exacerbating and unfair because you do so much to try and manage your energy and yet still have a flare. Um, so it's important to recognise when people are having relapses and try and support them in that. Sometimes they tap into adrenaline so they may seem like they have slightly more energy and it's learning to recognize that person's signals for when they're about to crash. It's also important to um, know that they may have done everything right and still have a, a crash or, or relapse and, and therefore not to blame themselves or blame the people around them.
So an early diagnosis is important. And if you're a, a social care professional seeing patients with other illnesses and you think they may also have NECFS, don't be afraid to recommend they go to their GP and um, consider whether that diagnosis may be a possibility for them. The four main criteria for making a diagnosis, it's all based on history. There isn't a special scan or blood test for MECFS. It's all based on three months of fatigue that causes impairment in function, unrefreshing sleep, post-exertional malaise, and that's the exacerbation in the hours, days, or even weeks after overdoing it. And it can be cognitive, so thinking, um, physical or emotional over, over stretching. And sometimes that can be a trivial thing, having a shower, doing a load of washing, that can be enough to trigger um, post-exertional malaise and cognitive impairment, which patients often describe as difficulty finding words, um, difficulty multitasking, short-term memory problems, problems planning a meal. Management is supportive and also mobility aids and care as appropriate. Pacing and rest are the key, particularly in the early stages of illness, and regular review for other illnesses. Um, patients will often have autoimmune connective tissue disorders, postural tachycardia syndrome, mast cell activation. There are a lot of other disease overlaps, including fibromyalgia and endometriosis as well. And don't forget, there are medications to help with sleep and um, problems with orthostatic intolerance and tachycardia. So patients can feel a lot better if they're given supportive medications and uh, advice. All patients, but all people with a chronic disease need compassionate care. And that is really, really vital. And just believing. Um, how they say they feel on a certain day. If they say they don't feel very well, you have to sort of work <laughs> with that. Regular review, mobility aids, some will need full-time care. And that's not just the obvious care that you can see, but sometimes it's being present so they're not isolated and in pain and suffering on their own. People with very severe ME need help with hygiene and eating and are very sensitive um, to light and sound. Some may not be able to swallow, they may be catheterized and tube fed. So patients need help from social care in terms of an open-minded approach and belief, but also there's real importance in, in understanding how how ill people are and that often they will try and give their best to you in that very short time that you may be with them caring for them so if they say they're not having a good day you have to be accepting of that sometimes you'll arrive to help and do something with them and they're just not up to it um, and that can be sometimes hard to accept because your role is to help them and the natural feeling of wanting to help them makes you want to push them to, to, to do something, to get out, it's a lovely sunny day, come on, let's go out in the wheelchair. But if they say, no, I can't, you have to listen to them, understand their priorities, be flexible in communicating. Now, this is for 
a, a social care assessment, choose a day when they can um, actually show what they can do, but also be able to communicate it. Maybe have another adult or advocate with them who can help explain how limited they are on a good day versus a bad day. Maybe make the assessment over several sessions. Try and make the social care assessment as accessible and easy as possible because for many patients it's a hugely traumatic experience and can take weeks or months to get through and over and allow for more time if needed. And there's a quote here. The physical symptoms of ME can be as disabling as multiple sclerosis, systemic lupus erythematosus, rheumatoid arthritis, congestive heart failure, and other chronic conditions. Other research shows that people with ME score lower overall on related health quality of life tests than most other chronic conditions. There's a lot of literature now showing there's a huge impact not only on the people with ME-CFS and their quality of life, but also that of their family member or carer. People need a person-centred approach, understanding of their difficulties, particularly sensory difficulties or difficulties with smell or perfume or clean products, continuity of care, so knowing what they look like on a good day or a bad day, or knowing when they're full of energy that actually <laughs> about to crash, um, understanding that you're unlikely to see people with ME when they are at their worst. Often that's when they will be in a dark room behind a closed door. Don't shy away from trying to increase services for those people because they may need more. Another key take home message is, uh, uh, apart from the post-exertional malaise, is that re-ablement is contraindicated. So unlike a physical accident or injury, for example, hip replacement, where patients do actually need to get back to their baseline managing in the house, um, for someone with ME, trying to get them to do more and more is actually contraindicated. It's counterintuitive to the disease pattern that can make them worse when they try and push through and overdo it. So, the care plan must reflect their needs and must be co-produced and care, getting that care plan right is really paramount. Help with admin and managing support may, may be needed as well. Even applying for help with funds for care uh, may be far too much for an enemy person to do on their own. Support them in managing their symptoms, getting hold of their medications, maybe a Gossip box um, to deliver the right medication at the right time. Energy management, maybe phoning up even to arrange to get a repeat prescription from their GP. Rest and also think about what meaningful activities increase their quality of life. Um, they're a human being and they just want to have fun when they can. Support patients to manage their daily activities from employment, family life to their interests and other caring roles. Support them to arrange appointments or home visits with dentists or opticians if possible, and aids with um, mobility assessments. So they may need an OT to come and assess them. Maybe that's something that uh, a carer can support in getting hold of. 
So here's some aids and ad adaptations, including um, defenders for noise, eye patches, and mobility aids, such as a Zimmer here and a wheelchair. I found wheelchair was unnecessary for me. I found it really uncomfortable to begin with, actually being going up and down pavements in a wheelchair, um, and I hated it. But if I didn't have it, I wouldn't have left the house. So it can be necessary um, to help. This is incredibly uh, up-to-date, very important, nice guidelines on um, health and social care. And I will read it out because it's pivotal. Health and social care providers should ensure that all staff delivering care to people with MECFS receive training relevant to their role so they can provide care in line with this guideline. Training should include helping them to understand what MECFS is, its diagnosis and management, and the experiences of people with MECFS. Personal care and support for people with severe or very severe MECFS should be carried out by health and social care practitioners who are known to the person and their family or carers wherever possible and aware of the person's needs. And that's to do with individualised care and knowing what the person needs. Service providers should be proactive and flexible in delivering services to people with severe or very severe MECFS who have particular difficulty accessing services and articulating their needs. This could include visits, online or phone consultations, home visits, supplying written communication, supporting their applications for appliances. So social care is really important for MECFS care in healthcare. There's also a major impact on family members' quality of life. Some people find themselves carers at a very young age or um, their partner may develop MECFS and they have young children and are dependents. Family members are often paid and unrecognised carers, but there are support systems for other people with chronic disease that can be used, including help and support for young carers, children's clubs, for children of people with MECFS, um, information about local support groups and also respite care. If you don't ask, you'll never know if you get support, but if you do ask, you may get some help in the community. So MECFS is quite different from other illnesses, um, mainly in that key feature of post-exertional malaise. And it's it's also invisible. Patients can often look well. Pushing to complete an activity of daily living on one day may result in worsening of symptoms the next. And actually, when, they, when they're doing the activity in front of a, a social care assessor, they may seem to be able to do it. But it's how it impacts them in the days or, or hours afterwards that's quite important. Increasing activity or graded exercise can cause harm. Patients need to be supported in conserving their energy to avoid disease exacerbation. And patients have different illness profiles. Some do get better, um, but some stay, some are worse or have a very fluctuating course and others stay the same and others can stay the same and very severe for a very long time. So it's important to recognize that. 
NCFS is similar to other illnesses. Um, someone with MS recently said, um, you develop, you lose your old friends and you gain new friends um, through illness. And a lot of people do find that um, other people with the same illness are a great source of support. Um, and some of your old friends who don't understand drift away. ME patients just want to be well, like everybody else. They didn't really want to get ill. They didn't ask for it. They do what they can when they can. Relapses are often unexpected and unexplained. Patients and their families need supporting in adjusting to their needs and also adjusting to the shock of coping with a chronic life-changing illness. Illness is sad, frustrating and expensive. Well, if they're having a good day, they're still just only human and it's humour can, on a good day, be a really good antidote. So this is coming to the conclusion summary. We've talked about what NECF is, uh, CFS is, myalgic encephalomyelitis, a neurological disease that is made worse by exertion. It's diagnosed on a basis of history and managed by trying to help the patient in not exerting themselves. People with MECFS need a lot of care, support and compassion, as do their families. And we've talked about how it's different and how it's the same. All of these links and um, supportive documents, websites and handouts can be found online and we will be posting them as well um, to help make your lives easier in accessing them. And there's a lot of other supportive um, websites listed here. Right, I'm going to stop sharing. Um, I can see there's some comments and chats, so it would be lovely to um, hand out expect Ruth to pop in whatever I have. Yes, thank you very much, Nina. Um, has anyone got any questions that they would like to raise? We covered a lot of the questions that had been put in in advance. Um, so we did cover a lot of them in the presentation. We are also going to have a lot of links which can follow up on that. Is there anything that people would want to raise now? Uh, either put it in the chat or in the Q&A um, and we'll see if we can answer the questions. If there's none now, we can certainly move on and we've got time for Q&A at the end. So um, leave everyone staying on so we can do that. Great. Okay. Um, well, thank you very much for that, Nina. That's great to hear. As we've said, the module is, is available all over the web, um, Action for ME website included, or the learner module. So um, really good to hear that. So Zoe and Rona, I'm going to hand over to you now. I'd like to thank you again for joining today. It's hugely appreciated.
appreciated and really great to have um, you involved in this. Oh, we just had one question pop up, which feels relevant to Nina. So maybe we'll take that one and Zola, Rena, you can prep for joining. So the question is, one of my questions asked, why is it not classed as an autoimmune condition? So um, there are significant overlaps with autoimmune conditions. And in fact, um, in many studies, around 40% of patients have a personal or family history of autoimmune disease, whether it be autoimmune thyroid um, or, um, or a family history of, of autoimmune conditions. Uh, we don't have an autoantibody that's been specifically isolated. There have been lots of possible uh, autoantibodies picked up to, um, to B cells and A cells, which are sort of part of the vascular endothelium. But no specific ones that are diagnostic of MECFS. There are some international um, research groups that are starting to be able to drill down on isolating um, factors which can show if something is autoimmune or not. But it's very expensive and time consuming, and no funding has been put forward to, to ask this specific question in MECFS. But I think it will be interesting to, to look at in the future, and I think it should be a research question. Um, ME versus post-acute sequelae of COVID, um, there are significant overlaps. Both are um, quite variable in their symptom presentation. Both have about 200 different symptoms, multi-system, autoimmune, and also um, in inflammatory um, and neurological. So it may be that there's pathology that's overlapping between MECFS and what's otherwise known as long COVID. And there may be some patients who've got MECFS that are more similar to long COVID patients than, than they are to other patients with MECFS. So there's quite a lot of variation and quite a lot of overlap. And until we find out the underlying biological mechanisms, it's hard are to um, draw any final conclusions on that. There is, oh, hang on a minute, there's more long COVID than post-acute correlate and the overlaps tend to be with long COVID. Yes, I agree. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and different people have different definitions of long COVID. In uh, some it's after four weeks, some it's ongoing after 12 weeks. But what's clear is is there's a definite cohort of people who've now had long COVID for getting on for two years. And most of those have the profound fatigue, uh, cognitive impairment, changes to their sleep. And it's all sounding very much like MECFS in terms of their those who are interested in, in hearing a bit more about the, the overlap between ME and long COVID, our uh, action for ME's medical advisor, Dr. David strain us on radio full this morning having this exact discussion so i'm just going to put that into the uh chat now so that people can copy it and listen if they want to so it's rather a long link um to facebook there great okay and we'll keep some more questions for the q a session there but do please keep them coming and um, it would be nice to hand over now to our other two panelists so again thanks for joining and i will hand over now Thanks very much, Ruth. Appreciate that. 
Good afternoon, everybody. My name's Rona, one of the panelists here with you today. Um, I lived with ME for almost 10 years from the age of 21. I was paralysed, wheelchair bound, and um, eventually I became well again through a variety of, of trial and error, more error than trial a lot of the time. Um, I lived with quite a number of the symptoms that you know, spoken to you about this afternoon, um, and I tried a variety of things to get well. Anything and everything was was up um, for grabs, and as I'm sure others can attest, um, and as Nina has already said, um, anybody with MECFS wants to get better. Um, you know, we will try all we can to get there, and we are really renowned for pushing ourselves because we are usually people that. Um, like to get things done so we give it our all every time often to our own detriment and um, one of the things that that Nina has touched on as well throughout her presentation was whilst the emir is the one obviously impacted by the condition there is quite a knock-on effect to family as well family and friends from my own point of view um, the best way I can describe how how I lived with my ME was that it was like having the worst hangover you've ever experienced, running a full marathon and doing all of that while suffering from full-blown flu. If you can imagine those sorts of feelings and signs, symptoms, conditions, you'll begin to, to kind of align to what I was living with at the time. Um, as I've said, we want to get better. We want to try all we can. And for me, that meant trying things like high hydrotherapy because it was the one thing um, my GP had access to that he could recommend for me and whilst it was nice to be in the water and have the weight of, of my muscles really taken by the buoyancy of the water um, it didn't actually resolve or quote unquote cure me in any way um, I tried dietary changes I tried the graded exercise I tried um, speaking came with a psychologist and I tried massage, acupuncture, anything and everything. The list goes on and on. And as I say, some of these gave me slight relief for a short period of time, but none of them were actually the elusive cure that we all look for and hope for. My world actually shrank right down to my bedroom, being bed bound, paralysed, wheelchair bound. I lost my job. I lost all my friends. I lost my social life and I actually lost the house that I was due to be moving into. For a 21 year old, it was all these major milestones you're meant to be able to achieve ripped out from under me completely. My life actually revolved around whether or not I had enough energy to take the next breath. And that is a horrible feeling to have. Not just a horrible feeling for me as an individual, but an absolutely shocking thing for family to witness as well there's nothing they can do I knew that struggle wasn't just mine I knew it was theirs and it didn't just gently ripple out like you know a pebble being thrown into a pond it hit my family like a tsunami and everybody was impacted by it everybody's life revolved around what can we find that can help Rona what can we do who's going to be Rona's carer whilst I have to go to a dental appointment for example. So my mum became my main carer. I was back at home 
21 year old who should have been out living life, I was back at home. Despite having my dad, my other mother, my brother, my grandparents be able to drop in and visit, mum's world shrunk. She was no longer going out to meet friends. She was getting up, seeing to me, going to work, coming home at lunchtime, and seeing to me, going back to work, coming home at night, seeing to me. And it took its toll on her. She became very thin. She lost a lot of weight through worry over me. And when you're paralysed and needing to, to get help to move from your bed to a chair, to be able to go to the bathroom and, you know, your mother's now having to toilet you and wash you and dress you as a 21-year-old. Um, my stress levels went through the roof as my mum also was impacted by this. But my family did all they could to let me see that although my life was completely different to what it should have been, it certainly wasn't over. Now, I am very fortunate that I had such a supportive family. I know that and I treasure that every day. Not everybody is in the same position. And that's quite a key thing for emirs who are doing this themselves, living by themselves. They maybe can't even contact a neighbour to help them. Um, they maybe have, as Nina's already said, they maybe got their own, their own children. They might have pets other things that they worry about that they feel they have to keep going for. And it's something to remember that it's not just an individual that you're dealing with, you're dealing with the wider impact as well. So please do speak to family members if they are available at, at these assessments. Um, I completely agree with what Nina's saying about spread them out over a longer period of time. There's a very limited window for some people with ME to be able to, to speak to you, to sit up, to you know, be able to fill out a form. I'm lucky I'm well now and I live pretty much a quote unquote normal life these days. But it doesn't mean that I have forgotten lessons that I've learned over the years. And if there's anything that you can implement today for the people that you're seeing with MECFS, it is please be open-minded. Please believe them when they tell you, no, I can't do that. I don't have the energy for it. And please just be a listening ear for them when they need it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Rona. And um, there's a specific question here for you, if you don't mind taking it, then okay. we'll move on to you, Zoe. And the question was, what changed for you, Rona, to recover? Ah, so I, um, hmm, interesting, I'm a little unconventional in my recovery. Um, I actually was involved in a car crash and uh, it's, it's not the recommended way of dealing with things. I do not advocate for car crashes. Um, I couldn't be seated. I know Nina mentioned, you know, being very uncomfortable in a wheelchair. Um, I was very fortunate. I had a very comfortable wheelchair. Not that I wanted to live in it, but for using, it was very user-friendly. Um, but following a car crash, I ended up with quite severe whiplash and I could be held upright or lying flat, but I actually couldn't sit. And in the course of about one week, 
being held up between my mum on one side, my aunt on another, um, I had managed to, to very, very slowly, I don't think they could be classed as steps personally, but um, I managed to take six steps being supported upright. And that, it was almost like that car crash gave me the shunt or knocked some sense into my body um, to, to get it back up and running again. Well, technically not running, barely walking, but I went from my wheelchair to using elbow crutches to two walking sticks to one walking stick to to being aid free um, over a course of about 18 months. Thank so, you so much. Very no nice. problem. So great to hear from you today as well. Thank you everyone uh, for their contributions so far. It's all been really interesting. Um, a little bit about myself before I get on my soapbox about um, health and social care. Um, so I'm Zoe and uh, personally I have fibromyalgia so although it's not chronic fatigue of course I've been assessed for that and obviously um, as one of the people put in the chat there's overlap between fibro and ME so um, in a lot of ways I can empathise. And then professionally for the past um, seven years or so um, I've worked in health and social care um, and what I think what's been particularly interesting for me through that period is I didn't always have fibro, I wasn't always disabled. Uh, it wasn't until about like three years in or so to, um, it was about three years ago that I got diagnosed with fibromyalgia. So there's, in terms of what my mindset was like before and after having fibro as a professional in health and social care, that really changed. Um, and even before... When I had fibro, um, you know, I wouldn't say I was somebody that was completely ignorant of disabilities or wasn't aware of the sort of not only like health issues of people with disabilities, but also like the wider stuff with like policies, social care, things like that. I was generally in the loop with that, you know, even at university and things like that. Um, one of the modules that I took was disability in society. So that was learning a lot about um you know, things like the change from disability living allowance to PIP and different changes the government's made in their approach to disability over the years. So, you know, at that point, I would say, yeah, like, like I know a lot about disability, I feel confident in saying that. But since having fibro and, you know, learning about fibro, learning about myself and also reflecting on how that can, you know, my reflections, my viewpoints going into my professional practice, I realised in the grand scheme of things that didn't know anything. I really didn't know anything and I think like that's obviously personally like it's hard to have that same knowledge of it's somebody who does actually have the same condition as you like that's a, an experience that you'll both share like two people then you will share that it's so hard to learn about as an outsider so hence why things like today are so important but also on the other hand as well um social care health and social care as it currently stands the moment um it doesn't have um not just people with any but like disabled people like front and center as much as it could be and should be so a couple of things that uh, both me and i think rona have touched on that um i'd like to you know sort of just add on from a health and social care perspective is that um one of the things that nina was mentioning was about the training being appropriate and about the emmy as a condition um 
although I've not necessarily worked with, uh, I've worked with a couple of people that have any um, in my current role, but in previous roles, um, I didn't work with anyone with any. And um, for, you know, I worked with a variety of dis different disabilities. Um, and the only training that I got thoroughly trained on was epilepsy. And that was because um, as part of my job role, I'd have to administer medication to do with epilepsy. And that was it. So in theory, like, um, in theory, I was supporting people and working alongside staff who had no prior knowledge of autism, for instance, and then expected to be able to just walk in the door and support somebody with autism, um, which, like, in hindsight, is baffling to me because the like health and social care is more focused around, um, you know, are you comfortable with um, supporting somebody to go to the toilet? Are you comfortable sharing them? Are you comfortable, like doing housework for them it's less like what do you actually know about this condition like what's your understanding of what it's like to live with pain what's your understanding of what it's like to live with fatigue and those are the things that are more pertinent to you know somebody with Emmy's experience it's not you know going to the toilet is such a small part of their day but living with fatigue is the bigger part and it probably always will be so that's something that I thought was quite interesting based on what Nina was saying and I also think as well, in terms of like the training that we are offered um, or is offered in health and social care, um, I used to deliver um, training for health and social care, so talking from professional experience here as well. Um, I used to deliver moving and assisting training, so how to support people in and out of wheelchairs, all that kind of stuff. And quite often, uh, even as a trainer, we'd only have the time really to teach like one maximum two techniques for some things but like some of the techniques that um I would try to teach people is like if somebody's in a lot of pain or is really tired like you're gonna want to know this option but that's not typically done across the board and even in um so there's a document called Scottish Moving in Hands and Passport like that's like government set guidelines as to like what people should be taught in health and social care and it's nowhere near enough because it doesn't provide enough like variety like right if somebody's in a lot of pain like or fatigue they're going to want this not only to be as like less effort from them as involved as possible but comfortable as possible and that just doesn't happen so like I think obviously the importance of as Rona was saying like having your support bubble around you whether it be family friends neighbours all that kind of stuff that's super important but also there's the sort of like structural policy stuff that needs to change um around health and social care and also just like a willingness I guess from a health and social care perspective from organisational level to have disabled expertise on board because I'm sure quite a few of the, the people that are watching this today are going oh gosh I never knew that I never knew that and I've been in health and social care for so long or have used health and social care for so long and yet haven't heard of even this is just like touching the surface of health and social care in ME today this you know this is actually surface so I think there's really so much more that's uh, staying in this all in the face and it's not been implemented um I think that's me my soapbox done for now but I'm sure by the time we get to the Q&A's I can jump back on the soapbox but um thanks for um listen, listening to me and hear me out guys thank you so much Zoe and so all of our speakers today you've all got a really illuminating different lens onto Emmy and I hope that's been
helpful. Um, we'll now move back into the Q&A. We've got 40 minutes should we need it, so plenty. Um, so we've got a question here about if anyone here recognises abnormal issues that they have experienced, which appears to apply here. I'm not entirely sure of the context of that one. It was a 20 minutes. What are the more unusual symptoms that might be missed with ME, I'm guessing, would sort of be what that question was referring to? Correct if I'm wrong. <laughs> I think Ewan put that one in. So, uh, yeah, Ewan's been invited to join. We've got a couple of people I'm assuming here to ask questions, Avril. Some great questions in the Q and A box as well. So, did you want me to? If you could see a bit more about what you're going to ask, you could clarify your right. Um, is this, I was thinking that people from social care may have recognised things with you know some sort of odd cases, which we think actually do relate in terms of practice to the things that we are putting to them that you know our patients need. Don't know if who would like to take that answer. I mean, from our experience of running an advocacy service, often which includes connecting with um, social care professionals, I think there's a general surprise at the amount of symptoms that can come under an ME umbrella and the sort of difference between them. It's not one thing. And I think that's where the chronic fatigue syndrome title that's often attached to ME can be quite difficult as well, because it tends to narrow it down into that one um, symptom when of course it can affect uh, a broad range of, of you know different parts of the body as Nina has outlined but I don't know if anyone wants to add anything to that. Yeah I think it highlights the importance of all care and support plans being person-centred and being led by the person because it can be quite different for different people so it's really about co-producing those resources that reflect what the person's needs are. Yeah, I was just going to add, because um, I see that one of the questions we got in advance, or a couple of the questions actually we got in advance was to do with care plans. So I thought um, I would chip in and sort of contribute my understanding of care plans and things like that from, you know, my professional background. And I would say, like, I, you know, the person-centred approach is absolutely important, but I think it's easy for organisations to say, oh, yeah, this was person-centred, but it actually doesn't help some it doesn't help a member of staff who's reading it fully understand what's going on you know for instance um, one of the resources that I know that actually for me is produced is basically like a crib sheet of here's what somebody with any might need but obviously like it's different from person to person uh, again thinking back to the care plans that I would read it would tell you about somebody's routines what they like to do what a good day versus a it looks like things that Nina was mentioning but there wouldn't even be like a sort of like one or two page long okay this person has autism like this is what that means you know so like again it comes back to the point I was making earlier of health and social care generally speaking is more concerned with can you follow this person's preferred routine rather than can you actually understand what um, their diagnosis is so that's generally one thing that um with care plans that I've noticed and I think as well what's useful from a staff perspective is that like especially 
in the previous job that I had in health and social care, um, quite often to have agency members of staff coming in. So from their perspective, they need to be able to pick up your care plan and take you from A to B through your whole day, despite never having met you before. So I think like when people are writing care plans, they need to be from the perspective of somebody you do not know is going to pick this up and read it and try and support you. So I, obviously to be a support worker, there's certain training you need to have have in place so that's like prior knowledge that's assumed so for instance like you wouldn't need to have a um you know you need to have training like moving and handling uh, epilepsy awareness if you're working with certain people with epilepsy or certain types of seizures things like that but um other than that it's very basic training you should be able to learn about that individual entirely from your care plan um so i think those were really my two sort of like take home points with care plans from uh, a professional experience um i don't know if anyone else wants to add in if they've ever had care plans and what they did to sort of approach making it but that's you know my, my experience my two things thank you sammy and a shameless plug here for the action for any advocacy service which is a quite considerable amount of work that we do is supporting people to develop those care plans it's available to anyone in the uk but of course we've got fantastic colleagues working in Scotland. In such a area as well, they can support that as well. Okay. Um, oh, and someone's asked, oh, that's been answered, but um, yes, so someone asked where you work and what your job is, and post in the chat that you work for Link Living. Yeah, uh, I work for Link Living. Um, I'll pop my uh, work contact details in the chat. So if you're interested in hearing a bit more about what I do, then just fire me a line. That's absolutely no problem. Yeah, that's lovely. Thank you. Uh, question from Ross about any research or evidence to suggest COVID vaccine have the potential to further compromise the health of those already suffering with any that's been his personal case now I know that there has been some um, communication around this again our medical advisor Dr David Strain is, is looking at this quite closely and I think we as an organisation collected a lot of different uh, stories from people around the impact of the vaccine ranging from very positive neutral to quite negative and I understand that there's that's sometimes related to which vaccine they had as well. And um, Nina, I don't know if you'd like to add anything to that or we can direct people to the website. Um, yes, I'd definitely direct people to the website, Ruth. And I believe research is ongoing to pick up the uh, medium and long-term effects. But from my understanding, it's around a third um, don't notice the difference, a third get better and a third get worse. Um, and those impacts tend to be most obvious in the first month after vaccination, but it'd be interesting to see how the medium and long-term data stack up. And it may in the future be a way of, of telling, or <laughs> we may in the future know whether you'd be, which third you'd be in, but unfortunately we, don't, we haven't stratified um, both MECFS or long COVID enough to know which subtype of, of the illness that you have and whether vaccines would make you better or worse information we'd love to and sadly it goes back to um you know this issue of me being so chronically underfunded in terms of research and biomedical research over many years that we just don't have the knowledge and understanding of this condition that we do for other common conditions often that are, are uh, you know less prevalent than me but we hope that will change in the coming future okay um we just have some questions sent in a 
advance. Avril, I wonder if you want to read some of them out on the panel. Can we respond to those? Avril, you're on mute if you're answering. Yes, I'm just I'm just looking at the questions now oh, and what might be um useful for people. Some of them has already been covered. Um, um, I suppose there is something about um, people asking about the impact of long COVID on people who already have MES and what the impact of that might be long term, uh, particularly around the stigma that many people with ME had in the past. Do people feel that that's a difference now? Would anyone like to take that question? Yeah, I'll, I'll take that. Um, so I've actually felt worse since testing positive for COVID in December um, and my baseline has, has suffered and I'm still not back to, to normal sort of three and a half, four months later. Um, and it doesn't feel any different from an exacerbation of my ME. Uh, so that's end of one, one personal experience. I think lots of people will get different experiences, um, but it does feel like um, it, it is a post-viral exacerbation. And I think people with any CFS, whatever virus they get, whether it's the flu, pneumonia, um, sepsis from other causes, um, have to be really careful in then sort of conserving their energy even more in the early post-infectious period to kind of try and give their body as much energy as they can to recover um, from that extra insult. Um, and then, so that's part of the question uh, about can COVID make any worse? Um, but then the second part of the question was about how people with long COVID are getting all this medical attention I don't think, I think the reality for a lot of long COVID people is a frustration in that they're not getting as much as they feel that they need, that they've lost their jobs or that they're unable to uh, work full time again, they're feeling uh, really debilitated, they may be a teacher or a healthcare professional and they're not able to, to go back to their life pre-COVID, which is incre incredibly frustrating and, and some have waited many, many months for a specialist appointment only to be then sort of fed into a, a therapist service which didn't really answer any medical or biomedical questions for them so there's been some frustration but on the other hand the fact that it is now being taken quite seriously by funders by researchers by international researchers uh, charities and also by uh, policy and practice means that there may be a better future for people with MECFS in terms of being taken seriously. And I really hope that it can be a positive thing. Um, if there remain largish numbers, I mean, we're talking at least double the number of, of people with MECFS with long COVID um, for over a year now, uh, then that will increase awareness just by more people being in the public space. Um, having a post-viral multi-system disease, and that can only increase um, public awareness. And Just to add to what Nina was saying there in terms of like increased awareness of long COVID, I think certainly for me, the true, not any 
me personally. Um, the two contexts that I've heard it um, discussed in or chatted about on social media. And the recording seems to have cut off just a little before the end there. But that's it for today, everybody. I think you'll agree that the webinar captured a huge amount of information and that the contributions from both those on the panel and those attending gave rise to some really good discussion and questions. Thank you for listening. Please review, share and follow Believe in Me with Rona Barton via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're listening now. Remember you can sign up for my mailing list by heading to ronabarton.co.uk or search for my Believe in Me community Facebook group by heading to Facebook and following my page at Rona Barton Coaching. I hope you're having a really good day today and I'll be back next week. Bye for now. Thank <laughs> you.